You might be well aware that what we have before us this morning is the longest of the 150 Psalms of the Bible. And it is the longest by a mile. Now, thankfully, Psalm 119 is very neatly organized, and it does possess a unified theme. Sure, you could pick out a few different notes that are sounded, but really there is a one note that stands out above the rest. Psalm 119 is divided into 22 sections, and it's done alphabetically using the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So 22 letters in Hebrew, and within uh, four under those letters are the 22 sections. Each of the 22 sections has eight stanzas, or eight verses. If you're doing the math with me, that's 176 verses in total. It is a very, very long psalm. We can't even say for certain who wrote this psalm, but many scholars studying the language and the style of the psalm would say that this points compellingly to King David being the author. And I share this view. So if, if I move or if I vacillate between saying the psalmist and King David, you'll know why. Because though it's not said explicitly, I regard David to be the author of this psalm. Now I want to suggest this morning, uh, maybe you're a bit worried, you know that sometimes I can go on at great length, what in the world are you going to do with a song with 176 verses, how long am I going to be here, do I need to adjust my lunch reservation? No, you're going to be perfectly fine, you'll get to lunch by noon, you'll be out of here well before noon, uh, I assure you. The psalm has, in my mind, a very distinct outline. It can be broken into four parts, uh, and those four parts uh, can be put up on the screen so that we can see them, and I will walk, by, or walk through them piece by piece. It begins with a declaration, and that is followed by the identification of a problem, and then thirdly, there is a presentation of a resolution. And if you take heed and apply the resolution, you will have a particular result. So the declaration is this. Genuine happiness. Not fleeting happiness. Not happiness in a moment in time. But genuine, enduring happiness comes from obedience to God's law. Where did I get that? This is how the psalm opens, verse 1 and 2. Blessed, or the Hebrew could be translated, happy are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed, or happy, are they who keep His statutes and seek Him with all their heart. Now for some people, obeying God's law may sound like a suspect way to achieve happiness. It sounds a little bit like the school teacher who says, if you follow my rules, then you'll be happy. It sounds a bit like the parent who says, you'll be much happier if you do what I tell you. And what is usually intended by those phrases is the suggestion that if you obey the rules, or if you don't obey the rules, the corresponding punishment will make you unhappy. But that is not the primary point being made by the psalmist. 
The imperative to obey God's law is born from the conviction that obeying God's law will make us joyful. This is a very important point made in this psalm and other psalms that that I don't know that we always get and take to heart. Obeying God's law will make us joyful. David in Psalm 19 tells us the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. In Psalm 19 and in Psalm 119, David describes the ordinances of the Lord as being sweeter than honey. And again, that's worth translating into our day and age. You might be sitting there thinking, well, I I don't really care for honey that much. I don't really use honey. It's better than chocolate. It's better than your favorite food is the point David's making. For me, it's steak. For David, it's honey. For you, it's chocolate. This is the best. It's joy-producing. And I want us to see that the happiness being promised is not merely tied to the consequences of obedience, but also to the process of obedience. In other words, doing the Lord's will in and of itself is a source of joy for God's people. Many of you will remember, at least if you're my generation or older, you'll remember the famous line from the movie, Chariots of Fire, when Eric Little says, When I run, I feel God's pleasure. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. Similarly, the Christian should be able to say, when I am doing God's will, I feel God's pleasure. When I preach, I feel God's pleasure. When I pray, when I read His Word, when I obey His commands, I feel His pleasure. Indeed, genuine happiness comes from obedience to God's law. That is the declaration made by the psalmist. After David makes this declaration, he then admits to and identifies for us a problem. The problem is that we're not sufficiently obedient. We're not sufficiently obedient, therefore we're not sufficiently happy. I know at various points in our life, we look in the mirror, we evaluate ourselves, and we say, I'm not as happy as I'd like to be. Or I'm not as happy as I ought to be. The psalmist, King David, would say we're not sufficiently happy because we're not sufficiently obedient to God's law. And we see this in verse 5 and 6 from the psalm. He says, Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. The ordering of of the language, the the wording here, he's not bragging, he's lamenting. David is lamenting that he's not steadfast in obeying God's decrees. And because he's not steadfast, he is sometimes put to shame. He is expressing regret here. The psalmist, King David, is not sufficiently obedient. And neither are we. Neither are we. And I don't mean to sound unkind with that. I know that our daily conduct 
is probably quite impressive if we compare ourselves with others. But of course, the standard that's set before us in Scripture is not a relative standard. We're being judged, we're being evaluated according to a divine standard. And by God's standard of good, by God's standard of purity, I am not scoring very well. Well, why is that? Why do we struggle to obey the law of God? I suppose I could name several reasons for why we don't sufficiently obey, but let me suggest one pervasive reason for why we often don't obey God. Here it is. We don't obey God because we think that we know best. We don't obey God because we imagine that we know best. The first sin in the garden started out this way, and it's continued with a long history into our day. It sounds absurd to say out loud that I would know better than God. That's an absurdity. But if we carefully consider why we do the things we do, if we carefully consider what's behind our decisions and our actions, what we will find is this. We have a sincere desire to do what is best for us. We have a sincere desire to do what is best for us. But here's the difficulty. If we do not employ all of the resources available to us, we have a very good chance of being sincerely wrong about what is good for us. We sincerely want to do what's best. We sincerely want to do what's best for us. But if we don't have all the resources, if we don't have all the tools, we run a very good chance of being sincerely wrong. Or to put it another way, Our way is not the best way until it's God's way. This is the take home. This is the take home. Our way is not the best way until it's God's way. Let me illustrate that if I can for you. I'll do my best, but my illustrations are a bit unusual. So here we go. Some of you know that the McPhails own a cottage about an hour drive north of Kingston, Ontario. We've owned this cottage for seven years, and before moving here, we got to travel to this cottage quite frequently. And by year four of owning this cottage, after much experimentation and adventure and misadventure, I was certain that I had found the very best route to our cottage driving from Toronto. I mean, I tried every little change of direction that was available to me. And by year four, I thought I had nailed it. That I had the best, the fastest, the most efficient route to my cottage from Toronto, Ontario. Well, this past summer, we were in Ontario. And for whatever reason, I plugged in my GPS. So portable GPS, global positioning system. And I plugged it into our dashboard. And of course, this is my homeland, so I really don't need directions as to where to go, but it was helpful in determining estimation times of arrival and the like. So on the way to the cottage for the first time with this GPS, it prompted me to go on a road I had never gone before. And, and all I could think of was, how 
dare this computer? I worked very hard to come up with the best route, the most efficient, the fastest route to the cottage, and this GPS system thinks taking Cedarstone Road is a better route? I was in disbelief and I was a bit offended. And so I did what probably most men in my position would do. I absolutely ignored the instruction of the GPS and I went my own way. I went my own way because I sincerely thought it was the best way. And so we're back and forth, back and forth, and each time we approach Cedarstone Road, the GPS would say, turn left here. And I would talk back, oh no we don't, I'm keeping going, I've thought this through, you're just a computer. I've actually gone through the paces here. And I ignored it time and time again. As it got near the end of our holidays, uh, Allie made the daring suggestion that maybe, maybe I should try it. Maybe I should just see what Cedar Stone Road would look like. And when, so now, at first I was offended just at the GPS. Now I'm offended at my own wife that she would suggest that this route might be better than the one I'd carved out. So I realized the only way I could win this debate, the only way I could prove that my way was best, was to actually do what the GPS was suggesting. And that way, when it was an inferior route, I would have verifiable data stating the same. So the next time we approached Cedarstone Road and the GPS told me to turn left, I did. And I was greatly embarrassed. <laughs> to find that turning onto Cedar Stone Road was a vastly superior route for me to go to the cottage. Again, I say this because I sincerely, sincerely thought my way was best. But because I did not employ all of the available resources, I was sincerely wrong. This is where many of us are in regard to what God prescribes in His law. We're not sufficiently attentive to God's law. And it's not because we're bad people. It's not because we're terrible. It's not because we're trying to be transgressors. We sincerely think that what we're doing is okay. We sincerely think that our way is best. But our way is not the best way until it is God's way. Our way is not the best way until it is God's way. So how do we overcome this tendency to govern ourselves without regard to God and His law? Thankfully, David prescribes for us a resolution. A resolution that I would think we would be wise to adopt. Have a look if your Bibles are open. Maybe it will be up on the screen. I can't remember. Have a look at verse 10 and 11. David says, I, I don't think it's on the screen. I don't remember making that slide. Verse 10 and 11. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. You may have noticed the resolution has two very distinct parts. The first is that we are to seek after God with all our heart. And the second is that we are to hide, or some translations, we are to treasure God's Word in our heart. 
The psalmist understands that the way to obeying God's law does not begin with us pumping ourselves up and simply determining that we're going to do better than we have previously done. Our inability to sufficiently obey God's law shouldn't lead us to try harder. Now this goes against the grain of some of our upbringing. If we fail at something, if if we miss a step in something, our natural or a programmed response is to simply try harder. To try harder next time. But God, our inability to obey God shouldn't make us try harder. It should incline us to ask for help. We need assistance. Again, let me illustrate this as I think about how our 11-year-old daughter, Anya, recently redesigned her room. Now, it's, it was nothing fancy. or It was just a few tweaking of decorations, movement of furniture. But the centerpiece of this room design for my 11-year-old daughter is Anya. She's getting a little tall, and she was tired of her little bed that she was in. And there was two little beds, and she wanted those two little beds put out into the spare room, and she wanted the queen-size bed from the spare room in her room. By the way, she looks like a tiny little angel in the queen bed. We might have overdone it. But anyway... Anya did almost all of the redecorating on her own. She used her will, she used her determination, she worked very hard to reorganize and redecorate her room. But when it came to switching the beds, no amount of determination was going to help her. No amount of effort was going to get her through this. For Anya to finish the redesign, she needed help. She needed assistance from another. And I want to put to you this morning that our relationship to God's law is similar. We cannot sustain our obedience to God on our own strength. We need help. We need assistance. We need God to come alongside us and to do for us what we're unable to do for ourselves. Accordingly, prayer became one of David's resolutions as he endeavors to obey God's law. The other part of David's resolution was to hide the word of God in his heart. And I want us to note that this is not a person who reads the Bible merely out of curiosity because they have some intellectual interest in it. Nor is this the picture of a person who reads the Bible out of a sense of obligation or duty because of its pragmatic value. I don't even think David is merely speaking about memorizing scripture. And this is the common application assigned to this verse. As I consider the whole of Psalm 119, I hear David, when he talks about hiding the word of God in his heart, I hear David connecting God's law to his affections. This is huge. So what David's doing is, he's coming to the scriptures and he's saying, I'm not just interested in this from an intellectual point of view. I'm not simply going to read this because I'm Israel's king and I feel an obligation to read this. 
David's saying, I read this because I love it. David had attached the affections of his heart to God's word. And friends, I want to put before you, our growth in as a Christian will be stunted until we get to that point where we want to read this, where we long to read this, where we love to read this. David knew what it was to delight in the word of God. It's about preference. It's about preference. Now I need to be honest because I always concern myself when I stand here that you might look at me as I preach these resolutions to you that you might think that I've got this all figured out. And that's not the case. As I think about what God's word is prescribing, I see how far I have still to go. And to be honest, there are times... If if I'm perfectly honest, there are times where my preference is for things that God forbids. So for me, it's not usually a question of I don't know what to do in terms of what God's law says. It's that I prefer something different to what God's law says. So as we evaluate ourselves, for some of us it might be the case, well, we don't know what God wants in this specific situation. And that's why we we go off track and we sin. For others, we might know what God's Word says, but we prefer something else. Well, how do we fight against that? David says, I have hidden your Word in my heart so that I will not sin against you. See, if this resides up here, you will sin and sin big. But if this resides in here, you will want to honor God with the way you live your life. Now I need to make an important point about this twin resolution of seeking God and also treasuring or hiding His Word. I want you to know that the one depends on the other. This is not a multiple choice. It's not that one can say, well, I'm good at seeking God, not good at hiding the word in my heart. Others might say, oh, I I hide the word in in my heart. I read it all the time, but I don't seek after God. It's not one or the other. It's, It's both and. And if we will not sufficiently cherish or treasure, we won't sufficiently cherish or treasure God's word unless we're seeking him. The one feeds the other, feeds the other. Let me put it this way. Show me a person who prays all the time, but never reads their Bible. And I will show you a person who prays for the wrong things with the wrong motives. Show me a person who diligently reads their Bible. If not every day, at least a few times a week. They read the Bible all the time, but they hardly ever pray. And I will show you a person who possesses merely an academic understanding of the scripture. But show me a person who earnestly seeks God in prayer. Who also regularly reads their Bible. And I will show you a person who's growing in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And presumably we're here because we want that for ourselves. So it's not one or the other, it's both and. Seek the Lord with all your heart in prayer. 
Hide the Word of God in your heart. Treasure it as you read and study and meditate on it. This must be our resolution. Which leads us to the fourth and final point in our outline. Uh, But let me just uh, follow a school teacher model and give us a little bit of a review. The first thing you'll remember is the declaration. Genuine happiness comes from obedience to God's law. The second part of our outline is the problem. We're not sufficiently obedient, therefore we're not sufficiently happy. Third point is our resolution. Seek God with all our heart and treasure God's law in our heart. The fourth is simply the result. It's what's promised if we do the resolution. The result is we will experience genuine happiness and the many blessings that accompany a life of obedience. I look at that, and and not just because I crafted the outline, but because the song gave birth to that outline. That's compelling. Because I really want to be genuinely happy. I don't want my happiness to be anchored to my circumstances. I want my happiness anchored to something more stable. So I implore you this morning to anchor it to God's Word. Now I've come a long way in this message, and I sincerely want to close the message off, but I haven't even addressed the phrase which served as our message title for this morning. Maybe some of you are more precious than gold. I think not only is is the projector not working, but I think he put the wrong title in for today. No, I've just saved this for the very end. The phrase more precious than gold is inspired by Psalm 72, by, sorry, the 72nd verse in this psalm. This is what it says. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. That's worth looking at for a second or two. The law from your mouth, God's mouth, is more precious to me, David speaking, than thousands of pieces, thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Now David concedes that there are other things that can make a person happy. David is not telling us that obedience to God's law is the only source of happiness in the universe. He's simply saying it's the best source. This is the best source of happiness in the universe. It's the most valuable. It's the most enduring. It's the most reliable source of happiness. And I want you to note that the comparison being made is being made by a king. If a poor person were to say such a thing, or even a middle class person if they were to say such a thing, that God's law is better and more precious than gold and silver, we might chide them for their conclusion. We might say, well, you obviously haven't owned very much gold or silver because it's delightful. You've, you've never had a massive bank account because it really does uh, make me a little bit jolly. But no, this, this comparison comes from a king. The king of Israel, who possessed riches upon riches upon riches. I'm in no position to make this comparison. The only piece of gold I own is right here. This is the only thing. You can search my house. This is the only, I own one piece of gold. 
Don't take my word for it. Take David's. He literally, literally owned thousands of pieces of gold. Probably tens of thousands of pieces of gold. And David's math was that God's law was better. It's more valuable. That if he had to give up one for the other, he would keep God's law. Silver and gold did not give David the same level of happiness that he received from walking obediently with his God. Now it's possible that this road or this way to genuine happiness that I've prescribed to you this morning may seem as unusual to you as turning onto Cedarstone Road was for me. You might be listening this morning thinking, what in the world? He can take his one piece of gold and go back home because I'm not sure that this is the best way to happiness. I stand here this morning pleading with you to take the turn on the Cedarstone Road, figuratively speaking. I beg you this morning to find the way to seek the Lord with all your heart, to hide God's Word, to treasure it in your heart, and to let it direct your steps. Because if you take this prescription... You will not be disappointed. And and I don't mean just for one day you're going to say a 10 minute prayer and read your Bible for another 10 minutes. I mean with all that is in you, with your heart, with your soul, go after God. Get into His Word. Treasure it in your heart. And I am confident that you will experience genuine happiness. That is superior to anything else you've ever had. I'm not an old man yet, although my daughter thinks so. I'm only middle-aged, but in the 40 years that God has granted me to walk on this earth, I've done my best to turn on the road that David has prescribed. Sometimes I take the turn, sometimes I ignore the turn, and I do what I think is best. But I can tell you that whenever I go my way, it ends in unhappiness. And whenever I go God's way, I feel His pleasure. Our way is not the best way until it's God's way. Amen.